So please turn with me this morning to Mark 5, 21 through 43. This is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning, Mark 5, 21 through 43. And if you've stuck with us so far, you know that we are in the third part of a three-part series here in Mark, spanning from Mark 4:35 through 5:43. so the final part here. And Mark has upped the intensity in his narrative in these last three, three uh, in his whole narrative in these last three individual narratives through, through the display of, of four massive miracles that Jesus performs that display his authority to bring the kingdom of God through the gospel. Together, these displays of, of power show that Jesus is greater and stronger than anything we will face in this life. And, and we've noted, uh, as we've seen Jesus prove himself greater than, than, a, than a great storm at sea, that he calmed with just his words. And we've, and we've seen that, that Jesus proves himself stronger than an unsubduable demonic army by casting them out. And, and from each of these stories, we've said this, because Jesus is greater and stronger than anything we will face in this life, we should fear him above all things and surrender our lives to him. So that is, fear of him moves us to faith in him. And so we've said this over and over again, fear is the antidote of fear. Now, Jesus delivered the disciples from a storm And they were moved to great fear and wonder at Jesus. And likewise, Jesus delivered the demoniac, and he was moved to great faith in Jesus and wanted nothing more than to be with him. And he surrendered his life to him, unlike the people of the region who rejected Jesus because they feared the loss his disruptive presence might bring, and they sought to hold on and preserve their lives, just like the demons did. And it led to destruction. So, in, in some, Jesus proved himself greater and stronger than the cursed natural world. And, and, to, to, and we should fear him and surrender to him. Jesus is greater and stronger than the supernatural forces of Satan. We should fear him and surrender to him. And now in this final narrative of this three-part series, Mark will show us that Jesus is greater and stronger than the last of all enemies, death. And, and you might say, well, trusting and surrendering and having faith in Jesus after he is delivered from a, a storm or after he has delivered from an army of demons, that's one thing. But, but in the face of death, that, that's something totally different. What does surrender and faith look like then? So that is what we will look at this morning, and, and, and it fits with this message of Mark, because as we've noticed, or as we have noted, Jesus, our model follower, the original insider of the kingdom, his road was one of surrender in the face of death. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and he surprisingly serves and suffers and, and dies forsaking fear and trusting God in order to save his people. So we should follow him. 
And Jesus, the Son of God, our perfect model for discipleship, the original insider of the kingdom, walked this road trusting in God as his son. And God gave him life. So Mark, Mark continues this theme of insiders and outsiders. Insiders of the kingdom will fear Jesus above death and trust him even in the face of death as we will see today. And he proves to be our greatest advocate in the face of sin, shame, and yes, even death. Outsiders reject Jesus, and by rejecting him, they reject the life he offers. Therefore, as insiders, we are called right now to follow Jesus even into the very hollows of death. But the comforting reality is this. He has gone there before us and returned alive. Now, this is the promise to us because he lives, we too will live if we surrender to him and put our faith in him. Death will not have the final say. In fact, the very thing that would once cause us to fear the threat of death when we're surrendered to Jesus is the very thing Jesus will use to increase our faith. So look with me now at our passage, Mark 5, 21 through 43. We'll consider it in three parts. In verses 21 through 24, we see Jairus' story. Then in verses 25 through 34, we see the woman's story. And then in verses 35 through 43, we see the conclusion of Jairus' story. So you may be thinking, well, it looks like we're finally done with the situation and revealing responses pattern that I've kind of used the last couple times. Well, actually, we're not. But what we have here is the familiar device that Mark uses where he creates a narrative sandwich, right? And this is how this story played out in lifetime anyway. You have, you have the first part of the story, which is Jairus's, and it's interrupted by the woman's story, and then concluded with Jairus's story. So you have, have this sandwich, and, and remember, when, when this pattern shows up, these stories mutually interpret one another. Well, so this is the same construction we've seen previously, and, and we will approach it as such. And, and within each of these stories, we will see the familiar pattern of a situation and then a revealing response. So first look with me at Jairus's story, and we see the start of his deadly situation in verses 21 through 24. First, we get a little context in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So we're back across the sea. We've gone across once. The demoniac was delivered, and now we're back again to the other side, probably at Capernaum, where Jesus was teaching a great crowd in parables. And it's not too long before this great crowd gathers to him again while he's still beside the sea. And so remember what the the crowd signals to us. It's been a while since we've seen it. It usually signals to us that something big is about to happen, and, and that is the case here, one of the biggest miracles we've seen And it also signals that 
this crowd could be an obstacle to, to someone who is seeking Jesus. Think of the, the paralytic and his friends trying to make their way to Jesus. So we'll see both of these things together. And Mark continues to fill out this deadly situation in verses 22 through 24. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, uh, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. So let's, let's stop right here. Having, having set the scene for us, the deadly situation now comes to bear. Jairus comes to Jesus. Now notice how Mark introduces him, one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now you'd be forgiven if you initially thought this guy is automatically an outsider, right? We, we've seen that, yeah, they might be considered insiders as part of the religious elite, someone you would expect, but we've seen all the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, completely against Jesus. And here is a, one of the religious ruling class, an administrator of the synagogue, who would work closely with these scribes and Pharisees. So we might assume he's against Jesus. Well, let's notice his actions. He sees Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet. And and Jairus implores or begs Jesus. Already we're kind of drumming up images that we've we've seen in the related narrative in this three-part series of when the demoniac saw Jesus, fell at his feet, and began to beg him earnestly. But the content of those two requests are completely different. While the demons beg to be away from Jesus, here Jairus begs that Jesus would come with him and heal his daughter. Look at his request in verse 23. Jairus implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jairus is like the other religious leaders. He has heard or even witnessed firsthand Jesus' authoritative teaching and power. And, and against what is likely massive pressure from his, his religious community to not trust Jesus or to not be a follower of Jesus, he comes to Jesus. Whether he was a secret believer, we're, we're not sure whether this drove him to to faith in this moment, all we know is that here comes Jairus, desperate in faith on behalf of his little daughter. Here is a father pleading on behalf of his child, his daughter who could die at any moment. The love of a father for his dying daughter moves him to forsake if there was any allegiance he may have had with the scribes and Pharisees who are against Jesus to be an advocate for his daughter's life. Jesus is his hope. His faith is made all the more clear and evident by his request. He says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So the word for made well here is is one of our key words today. It's an interesting one. It has a wide range. It can mean a lot of things, depending on the context. It can mean to physically heal. It can mean to deliver from death. It can even mean to to save in the sense of salvation, deliverance from eternal destruction. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1.21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save, same word, those who believe. 
Mark uses it this way as well. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake in the Gospels would save it. In fact, I think this is... This, in fact, this is how Mark most often uses the word. So it's, it's, it's here that he's using it for just physical healing, kind of sends our signals up a little bit. I think he, he wants us to read overtones of salvation here. It is what, this is what salvation looks like, the dead being brought to life. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well, or read, so that... So that her life, literally, her physical life may be saved so that she will live. But I think Mark wants us to, to, see, to see undertones of real spiritual salvation in what's happening here. So Jairus begs Jesus to save his daughter's life. And as if we needed any more proof that Jairus was an insider, think of the demons and the people who rejected Jesus in the last narrative. They beg to be away from Jesus, and here Jairus begs Jesus to come with him because he sees him as a source of life. It's, this is faith. This is faith. In verse 24, And he went with him, and a great crowd followed and thronged about him. So Jesus, without asking any questions, he goes with him. It's remarkable. I think, I think it's such a great picture of how Jesus responds to genuine, desperate faith. Allow me to spiritualize this moment for uh, this for a moment. Oh, if, if such desperation, honesty, and singular focus marked our prayers of intercession for, for those who are lost, as it does Jairus' request for his daughter who's dying. My, my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, who do not know you, they will die without you and perish. Save them. Will you come and save them, Jesus, and bring them life? We can learn much from Jairus' very real re- request here. So back to the narrative. Jesus goes with Jairus in response to his desperate faith. And the crowd literally throngs, is pressing all about him. And so Jairus' situation is progressing before our very eyes. And in the, in the midst of this, the woman, the woman's story interrupts Jairus's. Look with me at part 2, verses 25 through 30, 34, the woman's story. And in, in, in verse 25, we read, and there was a woman. That's how my ESV reads. There was a woman. So we've been in the midst of Jairus's story, and, and the crowd is thronging about him. And then suddenly there's, there's this woman. Uh, the original language is even more abrupt. It just says this, and a woman. So it's completely switching gears here. Well, who is this woman? Mark does the same thing as he did with the demoniac in the last narrative. He, gives, he fills out all the background for us in verses 25 through 26. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. So I want us to notice four things. Her uncleanness, her suffering her poverty, and her worsening condition. First, her uncleanness. She had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 
This is significant. Because any time a woman had a discharge of blood associated with their menstrual cycle, according to the law, this woman was ceremonially unclean for that time. Leviticus fifteen nineteen. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. Moreover, anything she were to sit on or lie down on would be unclean, and if anybody touched those things, they would be unclean. She is therefore completely, during this time, cut off from the covenant community, completely cut off from God's people. And if her discharge lasts beyond the normal time of her cycle, she is to continue in this ceremonial uncleanness all the days of that discharge. This woman has had it for 12 years. This means for the last 12 years, she has been cut off probably from every relationship she's had, completely cut off from the covenant community. She cannot participate in social life, let alone corporate worship. She is virtually a leper. She's an outsider, unclean. Her very presence threatens to make others unclean. Second thing to notice, she's suffering. This woman has suffered much under doctors, so she sought help, and it hasn't been it hasn't been beneficial in the sense of relieving any kind of suffering. It's actually caused her to suffer. There's only two other times Mark uses this, this word here to describe suffering. In both instances, they're used to describe the suffering of Christ in his life and his death. Puts a pretty fine point on the level of this woman's suffering. The third thing to notice is her poverty. She has spent everything. Everything, not just money, everything she has. Perhaps all she has left are the clothes on her back. And it's only gotten her one thing. The fourth thing to notice. Worse, it's, been, it's benefited her nothing. She has only gotten worse. So you might say, well, this is... This is certainly bad, but it's not deadly. It's not on the level of Jairus' daughter who is about to die. Why didn't you just call this section the, the unclean situation rather than the deadly situation? Because, because I don't think we should mistake the gravity of this situation. This woman, her condition is a death sentence. Socially, relationally, religiously, spiritually... She might not be lying on her deathbed, but she is the epitome of death. She is the walking dead. And unlike Jairus' daughter, who had her father to plead on her behalf, she apparently has no one. And the rest of the narrative makes this clear, it seems. Mark continues to describe this woman. Look at verses 27 through 28. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I, even, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So the entire description of this woman up to this point is to build tension toward this unthinkable action. It's the action. She touched, right? 
We, we lose something in our English translation here. This is actually one really long sentence from verses 25 through 27. The woman is the subject, and then you get all these descriptions about her. But the main verb, the main action, is touched. So it's this woman touched. So it's as if we're coming into this narrative with knowledge of who this woman is. We're familiar with her. We've seen her in her perpetual uncleanness, in her pain and suffering for 12 years under doctors, poverty, selling everything she has to just try and get better and thinking maybe this is the chance, but then suffers the crushing reality that no, I am still not cured. I am still unclean. This woman who's been shoved to the fringes of of the community, who has been ostracized for her uncleanness, the stigma of her condition. By law, she is cut off. Sickness, shame, brokenheartedness, and hopelessness are her garments. But then she hears about a man. One who has shown compassion and worked divine healing even for lepers. Could this be the Messiah? who heals his people. So this woman, she's the one who came and touched. And I wonder when the last time she intentionally touched someone was. Twelve years? Notice how, how she comes from behind in the crowd. Why would Mark include this detail? Well, she's She's sneaking. She knows what she does runs a terrible risk. She, the unclean, is one who is not supposed to be touched or touch anyone. She's trying to get in and out unnoticed. This is, this is stealth, he, seeking healing by stealth, right? This is why she touches just his garment. She comes up with a plan and puts it into action for this reason. She believed and she had faith. Verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So here Mark uses the same word to describe the woman's hope that Jairus had, our key word, to be made well, to have her condition healed, life saved. This woman believes for the very, believes Jesus for the very same thing that Jairus does. Jairus believed that Jesus could make his daughter well that Jesus could save her life. And here the woman believes the same thing. And what is the result? Verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So the the deadly situation has taken a stunning turn immediately, immediately upon touching Jesus' garments The original language says the fountain of her blood was dried up, healed. However, Mark does something here that we must notice. As as I've pointed out, all up to this point, Mark has been using this particular word for healing, saved, restored. Here Here Mark uses a completely different word to describe her healing. And, and you have to ask yourself, why, if, if this was the request and this was the request, why did Mark suddenly change the language here? Well, two things. 
The word that he uses could more narrowly mean cured of an affliction, a physical affliction. This woman recognizes that her physical scourge, this unrelenting affliction, has been cured. She feels it in her body. But I think that Mark is also sending a signal to us to to take a deeper look into this healing and see how it applies. So let's do a little word study in the Old Testament in Isaiah to kind of fill out this meaning here. Mark's word of choice is the same word that Deuteronomy uses to describe God's promise to heal or restore his people from the curse of the law. God says he will restore his people and have mercy on them. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. And, and, and so now this woman is not suffering her disease as a curse or punishment for her sin. Scripture is definitely, definitely silent on that front. This is not a result of her personal sin. But she is suffering due to the fallenness of a sin-cursed world. And she is under this law awaiting mercy. And Isaiah 61.1 promises that the Messiah will come and bind up. This very word that Mark uses here. He will bind up the brokenhearted. The Messiah, by his wounds will people be healed. Same word. This gives further insight into this woman's condition. She is a broken-hearted woman in need of spiritual restoration and salvation, not just physical healing. However, her stealth mission runs the risk of missing out on the very thing she needs more than physical healing. But as quickly as she finds herself healed, this woman finds that her secret is out. Look at verses 30 and 32. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. So upon her immediate healing, Jesus immediately turns and asks, Who touched me? Having perceived that power had gone out. Now, the disciples, ever clueless, stand in, in stark contrast to this woman of faith, right? And Jesus is searching eyes. Now, it's a natural question, right? There's a crowd pressing around. Jesus, everyone's touching you. Why do you ask that? But just the picture itself, right? Here's a woman of faith seeking Jesus. Jesus knowing that healing has happened, and you have the disciples standing there clueless. It's just this stark image. But regardless, suddenly the woman's situation would seem to have gone from as bad as it could possibly be to really, 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 really good. Looks like it's on the verge of coming apart again and taking a turn for the worst as Jesus looks around to see who done it. He looks for her. Her intentional touching of someone in her uncleanness would surely mean that she would be once again met with righteous judgment, not only from the one she touched, but from the community that she's been ostracized from. This would mean her social and ceremonial death all over again. 
But Jesus is not seeking her out to condemn. He is seeking her out in order to give her an opportunity to increase her faith. She sought refuge in Jesus secretly. Now will she fear him above her fear of humility and step out and seek refuge in him publicly. Look with me at verses 33 through 34. Here we see the revealing responses to this deadly situation of the woman. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So here's a familiar theme, right? Fear. But why is this woman fearful and trembling? I think it speaks to two things. First, Mark ties the woman's fear and trembling to, the, to her knowing what had happened to her. So put yourself in her shoes. She has known nothing of, of, of any kind of relief from her condition for the last 12 years. And instantly, it's gone. This would be completely unnerving. A miracle of such magnitude it would scare you. But I think, I think there's something else we need to consider as well. The woman was unclean. We've touched on this a little bit. She's not allowed to touch anyone. And, and so realizing that she's healed, it's very obvious what she sought after worked. But all her life, all she has known is that to touch someone else is to make them unclean. Now she is healed. It is, is Jesus now unclean? Has she done something to him? There will certainly be repercussions for her actions. This is the case. She's fearful. So this woman has a choice in her fear. She can hide in her fear and her shame as she has done for the last 12 years. Or she can fear Jesus more than humbling herself before him and her fellow man and come to him. She chooses the latter. She falls before him and tells him the whole truth. I think Mark phrases it this way because we want to see this as almost a confession of sorts. She's confessing what she perceives it was a wrong thing to do. Though she is not suffering due to her sinfulness, she goes against all accepted standards, against the law, and she touched Jesus. Perhaps she tells the entire situation to Jesus, the whole story of her Suffering in front of everyone. The shock and judgment would have been palpable. But, but here, even in her confession, we see that this woman responds in faith. She came to Jesus in the first place, believing he had the power to heal. And now she comes to him in faith, believing and hoping for mercy in spite of her fear. She fears him more than she fears being found out. And as a result, she gets way more than she bargained for. She is surprised by more grace. And the people watching would be stunned 
at Jesus' response. Look with me at, verses, at verse 34. And, she, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What is Jesus' first word to this woman? Who's known nothing but rejection, marginalization, being cut off from all relationships, being cut off from the community, from the children of God? Daughter. Daughter. A former pastor of mine pointed this fact out, so it's not original thought for me, but I lay it before you because I think it is 100% the correct way to read this passage. Jesus calls this woman daughter, just like Jairus comes to Jesus pleading on behalf of his little daughter who is dying. The difference, though, is, is Jairus's daughter had an advocate in her earthly father. She had someone to go before her to plead her case for healing for life. This woman who is, is dying and has been socially and covenantally dead for the last 12 years has never had an advocate for her life. She has known nothing but shame. And old habits die hard. So she's trying to get in and out on her own. But Jesus will not let her walk out the same way she came. He calls her daughter and makes it clear, not only to her, but to everyone listening, that he is her advocate. Jesus is her advocate, and this woman is a daughter of God. She is God's child. So she walks away with the very thing she was hoping for, to be healed, to be saved. This speaks to the full restoration of her life, not just physical. This is why Jesus says, go in peace and be healed of your disease. The go in peace is not just a throwaway random phrase that Jesus says without thought. He He always thinks through what he says, right? We might not. But this woman has not known peace with God or peace with fellow man for 12 years. And Jesus tells her to go in peace, fully restored. You are God's child. Here is an insider of the kingdom. She lives by faith and Jesus is her advocate. So while this is going on, we might want to revel in this moment. We might want to, to continue to just, to just bask in this glorious miracle, and everyone else might as well, but Jairus' story is still going on. And, and before this can even completely end, while Jesus is still talking Jairus' story picks back up and we get the second half of our sandwich. So look with me at the conclusion of Jairus' story in verses 35 through 43. We're back in Jairus' deadly situation. While he was still speaking, verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So as mentioned here, we see that the deadly situation becomes even deadlier for Jairus' Daughter, because now she has died. It's one thing to ask Jesus to come and heal someone who is dying, a dying girl. But now that she has died, what can be done? 
certainly the thoughts of those who bring the report, but Jesus will hear none of it. Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So this word overhearing, it can either mean overhearing, so translators are being kind of generous, or it can mean ignoring. And I think it's meant to be a little bit of both here. Jesus hears and he just ignores. And he tells Jairus to do the same thing. He calls Jairus in this moment to an even greater faith. The faith that it took Jairus to come to Jesus while his daughter was dying, Jesus is now saying, have even greater faith now that your daughter is dead. So for Jairus, it's one thing to have that faith while she's alive, completely different to have it while she's dead. And Jesus tells him, look at me. Don't look anywhere else. Don't listen to them. Look at me. Do not fear. Only believe. Notice that Jesus does not make the outcome known to Jairus. He never says, I'm going to go raise your daughter from the dead. Jesus simply calls Jairus to greater faith. And this call to believe in the face of fear and death becomes even more real. Look with us at verses 37 through 40. As this deadly situation gets even worse. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So Jesus, for the first time, takes his inner circle of Peter, James, and John. We'll see this more later. And before they even get to the house, Jesus sees a commotion, or another translation, uproar. Mourners and, and weeping and wailing. Matthew 9, the parallel passage, notes that there's, there's flutes present. Now, at this time, in Jewish oral tradition, it calls for professional mourners to be at funerals. In, the, in uh, the collection of Jewish oral teachings, the Mishnah, it says this, Even the poorest in Israel do not hire less than two flute players and one wailing woman. So Jesus says, why to these, Jesus says to these professional mourners, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, it's understandable that there would be legitimate mourning in this situation. So we might wonder at Jesus's Response: No doubt the child is dead. Why does Jesus say she is sleeping? It's a common euphemism in Scripture to refer to death. There is still a resurrection life to come, and there is a resurrection death, a second death that is coming. Jesus speaks of her earthly death. She is not, she has not met that final death. There is still hope here because Jesus has walked into the room. We have to do a complete reversal of our thinking when Jesus is present. To think like Jesus, we have to get out of the mind of these mourners who in this scene have resigned themselves to the reality of the curse of death, fully embracing it, yet Jesus resists it. Death is an intrusion on God's creation. 
It should be mourned authentically, but it should not be accepted as a finality. And yet some of these mourners have turned the curse of death into something to profit from. See how quickly the authenticity of these mourners is called into question. They go from wailing and mocking, uh, they go from wailing to mocking at Jesus in, in an instant. They laughed at him. Let that sink in. They embrace death and mock the one who came to overcome death and give life. One commentator says, Fools mock while the Son of God prepares to do the impossible. Was there ever a more stark contrast between outsiders of the kingdom and and the true original insider of the kingdom, Jesus? Well, the outsiders embrace death and we see that they are truly outsiders by Jesus' revealing response in verse, the second half of verse 40 through 43. So let, look there, the revealing responses. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So Jesus responds by casting out all the mockers, literally the same thing he does to unclean spirits. They are outsiders, literally on the outside looking in while he takes the the mother and father of the daughter and his three disciples into the room where he is going to work life. Outsiders and insiders. Look with me at verses 41 through 43. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should, tell, should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Once inside, Jesus takes the girl by the hand. Why is this important? Because to touch a dead body is to be made unclean. But the reverse happens again. The woman who was unclean touched Jesus and was cleansed. Here, Jesus touches the dead body and does not become unclean. Rather, he cleanses death, and the little girl is brought to life. And and at his words, the girl rises, immediately gets up, and begins to walk around. And notice what Jesus says, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Why? Did Mark choose to keep the Aramaic here? This is the language, Talitha Kumi, that was spoken. There's only one other place that Mark does this. And that's when Jesus is dying on the cross and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He keeps the original language. Well, one observation is that the magnitude of this miracle is so staggering that these words echo through people's mind anytime they're sharing this story. It's that significant. I think that's a good observation. That's a right observation. They were immediately overcome with amazement, right? And Jesus has to instruct them not to tell anyone because this, a a, a miracle of this magnitude would expose his messianic secret. He wants to open that up on his terms. But I think there's another reason Mark keeps the original language here. This phrase is a term of endearment. In Aramaic, it means lamb or little lamb. Why is this important? Well, it infuses this this Greek translation, little girl, with more meaning. 
This is not an impersonal throwaway address to this child. This is an intentionally thought out, purposeful name that Jesus calls her. Jesus is not a stranger. Jesus is a stranger to this girl. And he uses a loving phrase, a pet name. The very thing a father would say to his daughter, to his child. Here we see in his revealing response that this is not Jairus' daughter first and foremost. This little girl is God's child. And Jesus adds, give her some food. Obviously, everyone else is staggered, but it just puts the cherry on top to show that Jesus is not some impersonal teacher or patient. He cares about the whole person. So in the same way that Jesus was the advocate and giver of life for the woman who is spiritually dead, Jesus proves himself the ultimate advocate and giver of life for the girl who is physically dead. Jesus was her advocate in her death. He gives life to his children. So we ask, what does it look like to surrender in the face of death? We see two kinds of death here. We see very real real spiritual death, shame, and separation from God and his people. And we see the very real decay of death and disease and physical death. What does it look like to surrender in the face of each of these daunting realities? First, consider the woman. Surrender looks like coming to and trusting in Jesus, seeking refuge in him in spite of shame. Now, we've already said this wasn't due to her sin, but shame is all she knew. And Jesus invited her to step out of that shame and humility, to fear him more, to not hold on and stay away from him, to not try to save face, but to come to him just as she was. And he proved to be her greatest advocate, giving grace and mercy and life. He restores life. He is your advocate even in your shame, because you, just like this woman, are his child. And what does surrender look like? It looks like living by faith and coming to Jesus, even in our sin and shame. What about the reality of death? Surrender looks like coming to Jesus in Jairus' story, seeking refuge in him, even in the face of physical death. He will be your advocate and give you life. We are undeniably confronted with the realities of physical death here. And it's noteworthy that this woman and this girl would eventually die again. They were not healed and raised in the same way we'll experience healing at the resurrection. So these narratives are a picture of of what faith in Jesus would look like in the face of death. One of the greatest preachers of this century, G. Campbell Morgan, reflected on his own personal experience when preaching on this passage. He says, I can hardly speak of this matter without becoming personal and reminiscent, remembering a time 40 years ago when my first lassie, his little girl, lay at the point of death. Dying, I called for him then, and he came and surely said to our troubled hearts, Fear not, believe only. He did not say, She shall be made whole. She was not made whole on the earthly plane. She passed away into the life 
beyond. But he did not say to her, but he did say to her, Talitha kumi, that is little lamb arise. But in her case, that did not mean stay on earth, stay on the earth level. It meant that he needed her, and he took her to be with himself. She has been raised with him for all these years as we measure time here, and I have missed her every day. But his word, believe only, has been the strength of all the passing years. Here in these narratives, we see the love of God for his children who die in the faith. He loves them more than any love we can muster up for our own children. And those we've lost to death in the Lord... Those who are sleeping now, we will see them again. And in the meantime, God will use even this curse of death to increase your faith. Do not fear, only believe. So surrender here. Faith looks like trusting Jesus even in the face of death. You live by faith. This is because he died first so that we might live. He died so that we do not have to live in our shame, and he died so that we do not have to live in eternal torment. The righteous live by faith. And we see a picture of this very reality here at this table. We come repentant. We come out of our shame, a mixture of soberness and excitement, like this woman, knowing that we have been completely delivered and healed, but knowing, too, what we've done. And so we are repentant, but we come joyful for what Jesus has given us. We do not sit back. We come to him and fall at his feet, and he gives us life. And so in a moment, we will come and take communion together. And if you are in Christ, believing in his life and death for your salvation by faith alone, by the grace of God, you are welcome here. But if you have not accepted Jesus in this way, please remain in your seats and consider taking Christ instead. So as I pray, we will sing the first half of our final song. Then we will take the Lord's Supper together and finish by singing our praises to God. Father, thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for the body and the blood of Jesus who calls us out of our shame, out of death, and gives us life. Father, would you work that in our hearts even more now as we, as we take this supper together and remember Christ, our King and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.